His and Hers Horror features two adults discussing horror movies, serial killers, and other spooky content that may not be suitable for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. listening to his and hers horror my name is tia and i'm david and it's creature features time david oh no oh no terrible beasties that come out of the ground and other places whoa other places like the sky or are you talking other places like yeah other dimensions oh goodness we're getting into some like real rick and morty shit okay with some stuff this week all right i i guess (laughs) i guess bring it bring it i shall I guess. We shall. We we'll shall. do it together. Yeah, David has started taking notes more on well, stuff. I've got a new setup now where I can actually type while I watch movies instead of walk across the room and type mm-hmm. while movies are playing, but I can't see it. So it's a little more efficient. Yeah, you actually got to take notes on your laptop. Yeah. Instead of writing out paper notes. Yeah, considering my handwriting is atrocious, I'd have made a great doctor. Yeah, that's fair. But then again, my whole life, I've never actually read the notes I took in class. I just, the the act of writing it helped me remember it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some people are like that. It's, it's just when I have, have a feeling I need to look back at my notes and I go, what the, the hell f- does that mean? What the fuck does this say? Seriously. Like, there's some stuff I'm like, Dana Moreau? What, what is that? I don't even know what that is. <laughs> and and then I find, find out later those aren't even the words, you know? I'm like... Yeah. So we're getting to cover this week... One of my favorite films of all time, Mm. as far as like horror stuff goes. And this, I was having lunch with my mom yesterday, and we were talking about this movie. And her opinion is it's a very good icebreaker, so to speak, into the horror genre. Sure. Because it's got horror elements, but it's also funny and it's not too, it's not over the top. Fair, fair. So let's talk about 1990s Tremors. Yes, yes, let's talk about 1990s Tremors. <laughs> oh, I'm overjoyed, y'all. You don't even get, like, y'all don't even understand. I, I weirdly love this movie. Yes, yes, you do. Weirdly have, love this movie. I have two copies of it. I have a DVD copy, uh-huh. and then I bought it digitally on Amazon Prime. So I have it always on my Prime account. So as long as I have access to the internet... And Prime, I can watch it wherever I am. Fair. And I actually realized today that my DVD copy, the quality is starting to go down in it because it seemed kind of fuzzy in parts. Yeah. So I'm going to be ordering a Blu-ray copy. (laughs) Grief. (laughs) To replace it. Fair, fair, fair. (laughs) Uh, So this movie was directed by Ron Underwood. Mm Mm-hmm. Written by Brent Maddock and S.S. Wilson. Mm, great boat. you're a dork. I love you. The cast, pretty good cast. It's a pretty decent cast, yeah. Yeah. So we have Kevin Bacon mm-hmm. as Valentine McKee. Yes. He's been in a lot of stuff. Footloose, Friday, Friday the, the 13th. 13th. <laughs> Recently, he was Sebastian Shaw in X-Men First Class. Yeah, he was also in Hollow Man. Uh, Mystic River. Yeah, he, he's done he's things. He's done a lot. He's Kevin Bacon. He's Kevin Bacon. I mean, people are like six or less degrees from Kevin Bacon, so... Mm-hmm. Fred Ward is Earl Bassett. Yes. He was Earl Smooter in Sweet Home Alabama. 
Oh, yeah. See, I know him as, as Remo Williams from Remo Williams' The Adventure Begins. Yeah. Which, it's not a great movie, but it is a fun movie. Are, are there a couple of Remo Williams movies? I've only found one. Oh, all right. Then we have Finn Carter as Rhonda LeBeck. She was Sierra on As the World Turns at one point. Yeah, she was also uh, in the underrated and star-studded China Beach, which ran from 88 to 91. Really? Yes. Oh, interesting. Like, I was looking at the cast list for that show, and it was, like, everybody I know. Okay. I mean, I don't know them personally. Well, except for Dennis Farina. I met him. Yeah. But anyway. Michael Gross is Burt Gummer. Mm-hmm. I love that character. I, I don't know why. I just kind of love him. Michael Gross also played Stephen Keaton on Family Ties. Yeah. It's kind of funny. If you pull up his filmography, it mainly just says Tremors and Family Ties. Yeah, I mean, there's much. there's other things. He's he's done other things. Yeah. Reba McIntyre is Heather Gummer. She's Reba McIntyre. Yeah. I mean, she's huge country star. And she had a show called Reba. Yeah, she had her own TV show for a while. Victor Wong is Walter Chang. He was Egg Shen in Big Trouble in Little China. Yes, he was. We have also previously mentioned him on the show because he was in uh, Prince of Darkness. Yes. Charlotte Stewart is Nancy. She was Betty Briggs on Twin Peaks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ariana Richards is Mindy. She was Lex in Jurassic Park. Hell yeah, she was. Tony Gennaro is Miguel. I couldn't find anything else, really, that he had been in except for, like, bit work. Richard Marcus is Nestor. He was Mr. Reigns on The Pretender, which I only mentioned because I remember Mom being a huge fan of The Pretender. Fair. And then Bobby Jacoby is Melvin. Bobby Jacoby also acts under the name Robert Jane. Really? Yes. And he was homeboy number two in Can't Hardly Wait. Oh, yeah, I do remember seeing that. Okay. Yeah. It's tricksy when, when, when they act under different names. That's fair. Because we're talking about creature features... A lot of the times that involves uh, practical effects mm-hmm. and creature design and stuff like that. So I'm going to actually be mentioning the studios that worked on the creature effects. Yeah, because that's just as that's, important. Yeah, for something like this, that's a huge part of it. Because you can have a great script and great actors, but if your creatures don't look right, <laughs> it's it's not going to matter. If your creature is an inverted ice cream cone with eyes that's being pushed forward with a stick, it which is a the world, which yes. is a literal thing from an old B B movie and Conquer the Worlds, yeah, yeah, then it's not gonna go. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a yeah, that's a lesson learned, monster design right there. Yeah, so the creature effects for Tremors were actually done by Amalgamated Dynamics, which we've mentioned before. Mm-hmm. I mentioned them in. I think it was the Snowbound Horror episode when I was talking about Harbinger Down. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they did the original practical effects for the 2011 The Thing film. Right, before they got replaced with CG. Yeah. They also did the effects for Alien. Mm -hmm. And they've done the creature effects for the most recent Godzilla films. So the Godzilla films from like 2014 to now is ADI. Nice. Tremors had a budget of $10 million. Box office of 16.7, but it has since gained like a big cult following. Mm. And I'm sure the franchise as a whole, because it did spawn into a massive franchise, has probably made quite a bit of money over the years. It's made some money, at least. Yeah. Well, they keep making them. And they keep paying the actors, so I guess they're making something. Although, um, Michael Gross is the only actor who's been in every single film. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, that's saying something, all right. You're such a grumpy bitch. Oh my god. What? I don't look, know. Look, I feel like you. 
I don't dislike Tremors. It's okay. just not a flavor I gravitate towards as like a, hey, you know what we haven't watched in a while? Let's watch Tremors. It's, it's like there's certain foods that I don't dislike, but I will never say, hey, you know what I want for dinner tonight? This. I've probably watched Tremors three times in the past two weeks. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I have watched Tremors three times in the past decade, maybe? Yeah. And I'm okay with that. Yeah, that's fair. So let's get into the plot. Yes. So as far as... I feel like the best way to go about doing this is to kind of introduce the characters. Sure. So we have Valentine, who goes by Val, and Earl. Mm-hmm. And they are two handymen who do odd jobs around this really tiny isolated town in the middle of the desert in Nevada called perfection. The, yeah, the town is called Perfection. They are not perfect handymen. They're they're fine. They're good. They they do a good job. What? Uh, they're not very handy, but they're adorable. That's that's the first note I have about them. Okay, fair. I'll I'll leave my notes about the inaccurate stuff to the end. Okay. Okay, that's fair. Other town residents include survivalist couple Bert and Heather, Walter, who owns the local store, mm-hmm. Nancy, who does pottery, and she lives in, she lives there with her daughter. Yes. And then we have Nestor and Miguel and Melvin. Supposedly, Melvin has two parents that also live in the town, but they're elsewhere. I think they've gone on an errand or something. Because if you look at the town population, it says 14. But if you add up the number of people, it doesn't add up to 14. It only adds up to 12. Hmm. Yeah, yeah so weird. they're they're conveniently gone. Maybe they're in Bixby. Maybe. Uh, so one of the other people that's in this town currently is Rhonda, who is a grad student studying seismology. Mm-hmm. And her character introduction we get, Val is excited because the new grad student is supposed to be a girl. And... <sighs> Yeah. They go to say hi to her because Val hopes that she'll be hot. And she mentions that her seismographs are being weird. Yeah. It, Val goes on this, this whole thing about like his, his ideal. His ideal woman. Yeah. And I I understand that it's not meant to be a deep part of his character, I guess. But they do come back to it a couple times. So I guess it is kind of intrinsic to him. And it's. It's just kind of gross and superficial and immature because well, he's looking for a blonde-haired, green-eyed girl with with great breasts and legs that go all the way up. I'm sorry, I've never seen a woman or man or anybody whose legs go only partway up and then there's, like, just nothing. And then their torso. I mean, I think it's meant to be, like, long legs. Like- well, then he needs to specify because if he's going to be as grossly specific for one specific look... I don't know. I mean, this is one part. That's one thing I don't defend. I just move on because, I mean, he's going to miss out on some great folks. Well, there's an interesting fact and I will get back to it later. Just okay. okay. There's this film has a linear plot. So and I am the conductor (laughs) of derailment. Yeah, sometimes. (laughs) Uh, So one day they're kind of fed up with their situation in perfection and they decide to leave. Right. Uh, but unfortunately, on their way out of town, they keep finding dead bodies. <laughs> and other contrivances that stop them from leaving. Yeah. They first find uh, this guy, Edgar, who has climbed up an electrical tower and died of dehydration. Yeah. And then they find the remains of this other guy, Fred. All they find is his head and like a flock of dead sheep. Yeah. Something there says foul play. Yeah. A little bit. They, well, and the, the funny thing is, is as they're driving back to town, 
so they can call the police. They uh, come across these guys who were doing like road work. And Earl is like, there's a serial killer. He's chopping people's heads off. (laughs) And I'm like, why does it make, why serial killer? Why is serial killer the thing you think? Like, clearly you don't know very much about serial killers because these are two entirely different MOs. You have seen them chop the head off of one person. Yes. The other person was just dehydrated to death. Yeah, exactly. So they do get back to town. And unfortunately, the phone lines are dead. Because of course they are. Right. Well, and here's the thing about this town. I mentioned it's a it's a very isolated town in the middle of the Nevada desert. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that Bert says later is that part of the reason he and Heather settled in this valley is because of its perfect geographical isolation. Because you've got mountains to the east and the west, and then there's cliffs to the south. Right. So they're very cut off. Yeah. And there's only like one road that goes out of the valley through the mountains. Mm -hmm. So Val and Earl go to drive to Bixby, which is the nearest town. And that one road has actually been blocked by a rock slide. Yeah. The same road that was being constructed upon. Yeah. And those two guys are gone. And all they can find of one is like bits of meat. Yeah. Flesh goo. Yeah. They get back to town. And Mindy notices this big, weird snake thing twisted around their real axle. So, and I love the whole exchange there because Mindy sees it. And at the time, Bert is holding a beer and he just like wings it out of his hand and it goes underneath the car. Yeah. And he's just like, I'm going to investigate this shit. He and Heather are fucking on it. Oh, yeah. Like... He grabs like a shovel to get it off the axle. He puts a knife through to kind of pick it up and inspect it. And he and Heather, of course, have like maybe it's a snake that's mutated due to radiation or we don't know what it is, but there are theories. Yeah. And because this road is blocked and the phones don't work, the other thing that is a problem is that because of the mountains, the CB radio doesn't work outside of the valley. Right. So they can use it within the valley to talk to each other. But they can't call out. Right. So they are very fucked. Yeah, they're completely cut off. Yeah. And I love that Val and Earl keep getting voluntold to do things. <laughs> yes. And yeah. I feel like that's part of the whole them being handymen. Is that the tasks that nobody's quite sure what to do or, or how to do it have just always gone to these two guys. Yeah. There's a an exchange that, that happens where Earl is kind of scolding Val for not thinking ahead he's just thinking not of, planning of, ahead yeah. yeah and val kind of throws it back when you know after this whole weird tentacle snake thing that was on their axle bit they're like well what do we do now and uh he said uh we plan ahead that way we don't have to do anything right now that was earlier because they were they had stopped it at walter's I don't know. There's like 17 stops at Walters before. It gets- yeah, this is the first. That was the first stop at Walters because that was when the soda machine started making weird noises. Mm. And Val was going to go look at it immediately. And Earl's like, no, we've got stuff to do. And Val's like, yeah, see, we plan ahead. That way we don't do anything right now. Earl explained it to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's how it goes. It's still a good line. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it's by just by nature of them being the town handy guys that they are the ones that are going to ride a couple of horses to Bixby, which is actually, 
it's not even that far. When they talk about the mileage, it's only what thirty eight miles. Yeah. I mean, only some of that is through the mountains. I don't know. They don't. I'm not sure exactly how much. So on the way there, there is a doctor who I think is retired, mm-hmm. and he and his wife are building a house kind of on the outskirts of town. They stop by their place just to check on them, and they're gone. Because their car is gone, Earl's like, well, they were planning on going to Bixby anyway. Maybe we just missed them. Right. But Val hears old country western music playing, and they discover that the station wagon has been buried in the sand. Yeah, like ass end first. Yeah. I mean, the the headlights are just under the dirt. Yeah, they essentially are end up pointing straight up. Yeah. So they keep going because, again, they they think that these are just like weird snake eel things. Yeah. There and, can't be very many of them. Right. So they end up getting to a certain point and the, the horses kind of freak out. Because that's the thing that people who aren't familiar with horses may not necessarily know is that animals in general are very intuitive. And horses will nope the hell out of situations. If, if they can sense something or see something that you can't, there's no getting them to go a direction that they don't want to go. Yeah. So Val and Earl both get thrown. One of the horses runs off and the other one they see has these tentacle things or snake. What they still think are snake things is wrapped around it. Yeah. And that's when they see that these snake things are not actually the full on creature. No, they're more like tongues. They, yeah, they are the tongues of this giant subterranean worm creature. Mm -hmm. And I love that they just like fucking nope out of there. I would. They just run. They start running and they end up actually inadvertently killing it because they go to jump over this like concrete wall. Yeah, it's basically a drainage area. Drainage ditch kind of thing. And it crashes into the concrete and basically kills itself. Yeah, has a high speed come apart. It does, yes. And Rhonda just shows up Mm -hmm. because she's out in the desert doing her seismology thing. Yeah, and she was like, hey, was something going on over here? Because there was a whole bunch of readings on the seismograph. Which- yeah, and then she sees it, and she's like, what the fuck is this? And it's, um, it doesn't have any eyes. Nope. But it's got, like, these big, like, hooked claw mouth kind of thing. It's very beak-like. It is. It's very beak-like. And it has these little things on its body that Rhonda posits are what it uses to push itself along. It can actually get up to a pretty pretty fast clip yeah it seems to go pretty fast although the shots from it tunneling it's like desert isn't that loose a dirt but i'll i'll let that part slide that that's how magnanimous of you just you by n ray higgins that's okay that's fair yeah i don't actually have any notes on this movie other than my plot notes and my facts i was just gonna i'm just gonna let you go when we're, whenever I'm done with the plot summary and everything. Okay. So on their way back to Rhonda's truck, another one of these creatures, because Rhonda figures out that there are, are three more, because she's been getting these seismographs. The, the college has them all over the valley, mm-hmm. and she is able to figure out that there were different readings from different seismographs at the same time in various locations. Yeah, so she has it narrowed down to roughly four total, four minus total, the one that killed itself. Yeah. So there's three more. Unfortunately, they are chased by one of these and end up stuck on some bolters. Yeah. Yeah. 
that's that's when they start figuring out how this thing operates because they did a highly superficial post-mortem on it. Val unearthed the length of the dead one. Yeah. While the other two were just kind of, I guess, smelling its stink from its face. Well, and Rhonda's kind of looking at the points that it uses to push itself along and the, right right after she gets back up there yeah she's she notices that. that it doesn't have any eyes so it's it's completely subterranean and on the rock is when they actually figure out a little bit more about it because they they're just kind of sitting on the rock for a little while and they're thinking well maybe it left how do we know if it's even still here so val goes to kind of like poke the dirt and almost immediately it comes back out and that's when they figure out why edgar let himself, you know, die of dehydration is because one of these things chased him and waited him out until he died. And it didn't even get a snack out of it because uh, Edgar just stayed up in that pole. Yeah. And they're trying to figure out because it doesn't have any eyes. And since it's underground, it's not using sense of smell, how it even knows that they're still there. Mm-hmm. And that's when Rhonda figures out that it detects seismic vibrations. They use seismic vibration as an explanation for vibration, period. Yeah. Uh, I think what they meant was sonic vibration. That's not in my notes for later. That's just a, a bonus. Oh, thank you. Bonus <laughs> inaccuracy. But yeah, it can sense, you know, their footsteps. It can sense the the vibrations that happen when we talk. Mm-hmm. It can sense those. I guess footsteps would count as seismic vibrations, but... Technically, I think. As much as stepping on desert earth causes the ground to shake. Yeah. So they end up pole vaulting mm-hmm. from sets of residual boulders. Yeah, and I love that Rhonda is not playing your stereotypical damsel in distress type character. She's actually the one that says, let's do this. Yeah, and like she, Val and Earl are like bitching to each other. Yeah, they're, they're arguing over coming up with a plan. She comes up with a plan, tells them that that she has a plan. They completely ignore her, so she just grabs a pole and says, do you guys know how to pole vault? And off she goes. Yeah. One thing, one note I have here is I love that Earl grabbed a pole for himself and one for Val. Yeah. Because granted, it was probably for convenience of shooting and not showing, okay, Earl got one. Now we're going to watch Val walk over. I mean, that's from a filmmaking standpoint, that makes sense. Yeah. But also, I don't know, just the, the way that Val and Earl bitch at each other like an old married couple. Mm-hmm. It's very much a, well, I better get one for him. Yeah, you know, sort of situation. So it it just kind of it's kind of nice. Yeah, it, it plays into it because I mean you know earlier in the movie they're t- they're arguing over whose turn it was to make lunch and yeah, there's a genuine camaraderie that you kind of get from yeah. these characters that I really appreciate. Yeah, they do feel like the kind of people that have been worked together for years. Yeah. So yes, they pull vaults to Rhonda's truck and end up back in perfection. <laughs> what? Just it's it's the wildest thing because they they drive off and once again we get a film where the lady drives off without being able to see anything because she just dives through the window of the the, the back window of the truck yeah sticks the key in the ignition turns the ignition and is pressing on the gas with her hand she can't see where they're going how they get there I don't know but I'm assuming eventually they're they're far enough away that they can stop for a second so she can actually get in the driver's seat I don't know but they end up back in perfection and. Val figures out, based on where the bodies were, that these creatures are getting closer and closer to town. Mm-hmm. And he's very quickly proven right when one of them tries to get Melvin. Mm-hmm. Val saves Mindy, because little Mindy, she's on her pogo stick, which is just the cutest thing. Because, like, I mean, she's, like, one of two kids that lives in this town. 
Yeah, and the, and the other one, one is not a, an asshole. Yeah, the other one's a teenage boy who, you know, doesn't want to play with a with a little kid, probably. Well, yeah, but... And so her whole thing is she's got a Walkman and headphones, and she's got a pogo stick, and I think she's trying to beat some sort of record. Yeah, because she's on 600 and something when they ask her about it earlier. Yeah, when Earl asks her about it in the beginning, she's on 630 or 640, one or the other. So Val saves her from one of the graboids right before it kind of sucks her pogo stick in. There goes that record. Well, I'd rather be alive than have a world record pogo stick count. Fair. But then another one kind of... Rhonda ends up getting sort of trapped. Mm -hmm. Because when she was trying to run, she tripped over some barbed wire. And then one of the things came up through the ground and she rolled and ended up with the barbed wire wrapped around her legs. Yeah. And then this creature which have they named at this point yet they have not named it at okay, this point so I'm, no. not gonna, I'm not gonna use the name yet but this, that's walter's whole thing is like we sh- we discovered it we should get to name it and he he's trying to come up with a name for it i love that the solution to saving her is when val runs over and says take off your pants and it's not it's not a sexual thing and it's very clearly not done in a skeezy way when no and he immediately runs over he starts taking off her shoes and tells her to take off her to get out of her pants yeah because that's going to be the easiest way to slip out of being having both of your legs tangled up in barbed wire is, well, let's get you out of what's what's snagged. You yeah, because this, this thing has, some of the tentacles have grabbed the piece of wood that's attached to the barbed wire and are pulling on it. Yeah. Because they know that lunch is attached to the other end. Yeah, well, you know, if they had set, set those fence posts a little bit better, maybe... Uh, uh, maybe, I maybe. don't know. So now everybody's kind of separated. Mm-hmm. Bert and Heather are still off. They decided they were going to kind of drive around the valley and see if they could find anything, essentially. Maybe a nest or some evidence of where these things are and what they can do to get rid of them. Because that's Bert and Heather's whole thing is like, I see what I need to take care of. Let's take care of it. Yeah, they're they're very action focused. They're very, they're survivalist you know, prepper types without necessarily the, they don't really push a lot of the, you know, modern day conspiracy theory stuff. I mean, a little bit. Yeah. But. Like, Bert has a very, has like the typical kind of distrust for the federal government that, that you see a lot of survivalist stuff that has in, in the, in the generalized fiction, but it's not like super out there. Right. So everybody's separated. Miguel, Walter, Val, Earl, and Rhonda are in the store Nancy and Mindy are at their house. Nestor's at his trailer. And Melvin, for some reason, is in this, like... Shed. This, yeah, this scrap metal shed. I don't know why. I don't even know how that's helpful, because that probably doesn't have a floor. I mean, it might have a poured concrete floor, but... I, I don't know. It seemed weird. And everything's going fine until that cooler from earlier starts to go off. Yeah, and making all those noises and stuff. Yeah, they get it turned off, but unfortunately it kills Walter. Mm-hmm. And this encourages everyone to get up on their roofs. Yeah, because a wooden floor isn't really going to save you from something that can burrow burst, through. Burst through the wooden floor? Yeah. Yeah. Interestingly enough, the reason that the creatures, they are eventually named, they're called Graboids. Mm-hmm. Because that's the name that Walter came up with. So they are named in his honor. Yeah, as graboids because they grab you. Yeah, and they're oids. And he, well, and he liked the he liked the oids part. Yeah, because one of the suggestions Melvin had was suckoids, and Walter was like, "Oids, I like oids." Yeah, can you imagine if they stuck with suckoids? Oh, that would be bad. Although that's not much better because there is 
in the sequels, you find out there's like a life cycle to these creatures. So this is just one... This is just one iteration, one yeah. One phase, yeah. And one of the cycles is called Ass Blasters. Oh, jeez Louise. <laughs> I will watch Tremors once a year with you if you like. No, I don't need you to watch it with me. The I'll sequels, watch it by myself. The sequels, those are all yours. Oh, uh, I have thoughts about those. We'll get into it. So Bert and Heather get back to their little compound... Which has like an automated gate and everything. Mm -hmm. It looks pretty cool. And uh, they kill one after unknowingly luring it into their little basement rec room slash armory. (laughs) Yeah, it's there, all right. So there's two that are left now. Mm -hmm. And the thing about these creatures is they're they're smarter than you would think. They learn. Or at least they, they learn. Yeah. So they're kind of testing the foundations of the buildings because, as as Rhonda says, they can hear us. They know we're here, but they don't know where we are. Because they're further away because they're up on roofs and stuff. Yeah. So eventually they realize that they have to get the fuck out of this town because the longer they stay, eventually the Graboids are going to figure out how to rip the town out from underneath them. Yeah. And then they're just lunch. Yeah. And they'll either, you know, be eaten or they'll die of starvation and dehydration like Edgar did. And nobody wants that. Yeah. So Val and Earl figure out that there is a small bulldozer type thing that weighs a few tons. Yeah. we And we saw it earlier when they were dealing with trash doing their handyman yeah. jobs. So they decide their whole plan is while the others are distracting the Graboids, Val makes a run for this bulldozer. And chains a semi-trailer to it, basically figuring it doesn't matter that the semi-trailer's tires are gone, this bulldozer can still pull it, especially through the desert. Right. And surely these graboids couldn't pull down something as heavy as a bulldozer, which, I mean, they're not wrong in their initial thoughts. Yeah, I mean, if if one could be stopped by a maybe eight inch thick rebar reinforced concrete barrier, Mm -hmm. then they're not pulling down a a bulldozer. Right. I I mean, they could probably burrow a chamber underneath it and then pop up through and let it sink. Which is what they do end up eventually doing. But it was a good plan to start out because they don't have to drive the full 38 miles to the other town. They only have to drive to the mountains. Which is only nine miles. Yeah. So unfortunately, as you alluded to, these creatures dig a sinkhole trap and everybody ends up on residual boulders again. (laughs) Here we are again on rocks. But now we have Bert motherfucking Gummer to the rescue because he and Heather have made a bunch of pipe bombs. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) With cannon fuses. With cannon fuses. That's one of my favorite exchanges. (laughs) Bert's t- Bert and Earl are talking, and Earl's like, what kind of fuses are these? Oh, they're cannon fuses. What do you use them for? For my cannon. Which, like... Because of course of he course has a cannon. Of course he has a fucking cannon. Of course he does. One of the things that they... Uh, the additional things that they figure out is because these creatures react to seismic vibrations or vibrations in general, the sound caused by these pipe bombs going off hurts the creatures, and they have to run away. Not run away, I guess, because they can't run, but you know what I mean. Yeah, they, they skitter away. Yeah. Burrow away. And when th- what Earl decides to do, or I don't remember whose idea it actually is, is they tie one of the pipe bombs to a rope and kind of lasso it out. Mm-hmm. And when it hits the ground, one of the graboids grabs it and eats it and explodes. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the other one's too smart for that. Yeah. 
<laughs> that one, they try to do it again, and uh, it, it... It spits it out. And goes right back towards them. They all have to star pattern go. Yeah. So what Val does is kind of runs to a cliff edge and then purposefully throws the last pipe bomb behind it, which scares it and hurts it into charging through the cliff face and exploding on the rocks below. Where it lands looking like an exploded roasted sweet potato. It does. Everyone eventually goes back to town. There's research that's going to be done. It's a happily ever after, blah, blah, blah. There are six sequels. Jeez. Actually, technically there are five. There's five in a TV show, right? Well, there's a TV show. Mm -hmm. There are five sequels and one prequel. Oh, boy. And the prequel takes place in 1889. Oh, good grief. Back when the town was called Rejection. Ah, so they they upgraded from Rejection to Perfection with just a little... Yeah. Letters. Yeah. Words, words. They changed the name of the town. That's what I was trying to say. Yeah. You know, the letter things. That make up sounds in your face hole. Yeah. I have seen every film except for the the prequel. The most recent one takes place on an island where a big game hunter has biologically engineered more advanced graboids for a big game hunt. I tell you what, I will watch the prequel with you. (laughs) I will watch the prequel with you. I would rather you watch... Actually... I would rather you watch Cold Day in Hell because that's the one with Arctic graboids. And one of the characters is Val and Rhonda's daughter because they end up together. That's cute. So she's a she's actually one of the researchers, a scientist at that Arctic base in one of the sequels. And her name is also Val. Mm. On second thought, I'll wait till they do one in space. They ha- I, mm, The Arctic one also has Jamie Kennedy. Sold. <laughs> There's two of them that have Jamie Kennedy and one of them that has Napoleon Dynamite. The actor from Napoleon Dynamite or someone named... The actor who plays Napoleon Dynamite. Yes. Yeah. He's in the most recent one. All right. I'll I'll give him a try. No, (laughs) you don't have to. It's fine. So I have a couple facts and then we'll get into your thoughts because as I said, I don't have any thoughts. I've talked about this movie enough. So S.S. Wilson said he got the idea for the film while he was working for the U.S. Navy. Mm. While he was... I don't know why the U.S. Navy was doing stuff in a desert in California. Happens all the time. Okay. Well, never mind then. But while resting on a rock, he imagined what it might be like if something underground kept him, kept him from getting off of the rock. As I mentioned before, all the Tremors was not a big hit during its theatrical run. It had kind of like a runaway success in the home video market and ultimately tripled its original box office with VHS sales and rentals. Wow. Yeah. Almost all of the actors were cast through open auditions, Mm. which apparently is really rare for like studio films. There were offers that were made for the role of Val. Those offers were made to Bill Paxton. Okay. Matthew Modine. Okay. And Bruce Campbell. All right. I mean, all those in, you know, 1989, 1990 timeframe. Yeah, that all makes sense. I don't think there's anything wild about that. Yeah. There was one actor that Ron Underwood kind of wanted for the part of Earl, mm-hmm. but he was too afraid to reach out and ask if he was interested. Jack Palance. Ooh. I know. Yeah, I would have been too afraid too. Yeah. Uh, so my last fact is about that elephant gun that Bert uses to eventually kill the graboid that bursts into his and Heather's rec room. Mm-hmm. That gun is a Belgian-made William Moore and Company 8-gauge shotgun. 
It was rented from a private collector for use in the film, and it fired dummy cartridges that were custom made from solid brass rod stock. Nice. I thought you would find that interesting. It means very little to me, but I thought you and maybe some of our listeners would find that interesting. I, I mean, I could tell it was loaded with what looked to be slugs, which is what you would want with something like that. Mm-hmm. But... He's big gun. Yeah. Uh, the only other thought, really, that I haven't shared that isn't part of my collection of inaccuracies, because <laughs> that is actually about half my notes for this film. Mm-hmm. There's a point in the film where they, they turn to Rhonda for an, a scientific answer to a question. It's like the millionth time they've done it. And she's a seismologist, which is a specialization within geology. Mm-hmm. She is not a scientist who knows all. She is not an oracle. She's not a zoologist. She's not... She's not a... a anthropologist paleontologist, or archaeologist. Any of the ologists. No, she's the she's one kind of ologist. One, she's a monologist. Yeah. One ology. And this is just a public service announcement on behalf of a fictional character. Do your science friendos a favor and please don't assume they have a scientific answer for everything. Sometimes the best answer a scientist who doesn't specialize in that area can give you is I don't know or I don't know and I don't know anybody who does. Thank you. Yeah. That's that's well, that's all I have to say about that. Or even ask differently. Be like, hey, do you have a theory about this? Not, what are these? Where do they come from? What do we do? Why don't you know? You're a scientist. It's you're like- a scientist. Don't you have a... Well, actually, that is true. Melvin says, you're a scientist. Don't you have a theory? And I'm like, well, yeah, she probably does, but that's not what you're asking. Yeah. I mean, that anybody who works on cars. Someone has trouble with boat engine. Mm-hmm. Well, you work on your car. You know, I, I've seen you work on your car. Don't? Why can't you help me with my boat? Because it's a different type of engine, yeah. in a different type of environment with different different needs and wants and you know preferences. You know, Special- are you anthropomorphizing an engine? Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. All I'm saying is, you know, it, it's almost akin to like someone saying, "Oh, they were in the military." You find out what branch they were in, and all of a sudden you're asking them about like the one thing you know about that branch, and it's like. Dude, I don't know. I wasn't at Guadalcanal. Why are you asking me? Look it up. The internet exists. Back in 1990, I would have said, look it up in Encyclopedia Britannica. Mm -hmm. That was what I was told if I had a question was, go look it up in the encyclopedia. What does this word mean? Well, what does a dictionary say? Yeah. If you don't know, you can just say you don't know. Exactly. Do you have any further thoughts on Tremors that aren't for your... No. For later? Okay. I do not. All right. Let's get into the mist. Sounds good. It's... It's a movie that I didn't like when I initially saw it, mm. but on a rewatch with a reevalu- like reevaluating it, I have a, a different opinion now. Fair. So The Mist came out in 2007, mm-hmm. written and directed by uh, Frank Darabont. It's based off of a novella by Stephen King. Right. Frank Darabont, for people who are unfamiliar has done several Stephen King adaptations. Yeah, Shawshank Redemption. Uh, he also did The Green Mile. Mm. Darabout is also one of the main showrunners at the beginning of The Walking Dead. Oh, fair. Which is why there are several Walking Dead actors in this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so for the cast, we have Thomas Jane as David Drayton. Mm-hmm. We've mentioned him before. He was Carter in Deep Blue Sea. He's also Henry in Dreamcatcher, which is another King adaptation. Right. Nathan Gamble is Billy Drayton. He... Most recently has been playing uh, Gary on The Goldbergs, which is a show I don't watch, but maybe some people are familiar with it. Sure. Marsha Gay Harden is Mrs. Carmoody. Hmm. She more recently was Rebecca Halliday on The Newsroom. Yeah. She's been in other stuff. Oh, yeah. 
Lori Holden is Amanda Dumfrey. She was Andrea on The Walking Dead. Yes, she was. Andre Brower is Brent Norton. He was Captain Holtz on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Nine-Nine? Nine-Nine. Toby Jones is Ollie Weeks. He was Dr. Arnim Zola in yes. the MCU. He's been in a he's been in other stuff, but Yeah, he's a very distinctive actor. Mhm. Another good character actor we have in this movie is William Sadler. Yes. Uh, he plays Jim. He was Haywood in The Shawshank Redemption. Uh, he was also Father Hagen in The Unholy. Mhm. Jeffrey DeMunn, another Walking Dead actor, is Dan Miller. He was Dale on The Walking Dead. Yes. Frances Sternhagen is Irene Repler. She was Millicent Carter on ER. Okay, yeah. I never watched ER because mom didn't like it, so. Yeah. Alexa Davalos is Sally. She was Juliana on The Man in the High Castle. Mm-hmm. And then we have Sam Witwer as Private Wayne Jessup. Yes. He was Mr. Hyde on Once Upon a Time, but he's also Starkiller in Star Wars The Force Unleashed. Yes. Yes, he is. It's one of those things where it's like, is that? No, it can't be. And then you look at his eyebrows and you go, yes, yes it yes, absolutely it is. is. Yeah. The funny thing is later in the film, he's holding a knife the same way that Starkiller holds his lightsaber. Yeah. And it's kind of adorable. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's something. Yeah. I feel like you have opinions, but we'll get to that. <laughs> uh, so the creature effects for this film was actually done by two studios. Mm-hmm. One is K&B FX, which is Greg Nicotero's studio. Right. K&B FX did the special effects for... They've done the effects for a lot of stuff, um, but the two specific things I have are The Evil Dead 2 and The Walking Dead. Right. Like, at this point, Greg Nicotero doesn't just do effects on The Walking Dead. He also, like, directs episodes. He's one of the producers. He's he's a big deal. Yeah. Yeah, and, and the work he and his studio do, are fan, is, it's fantastic. Yes. The other studio, Cafe FX, sadly closed in 2010. Mm. And But they did the effects for Planet Terror and Pan's Labyrinth. Oh, wow. Which, if, you, if anybody's seen Pan's Labyrinth, you know the creature effects for that are stunning. Mm. The fawn and especially the pale man, oh my god. Yeah. Just top notch. Budget of $18 million, box office of 57.3. Nice. Mm, Not too bad. So let's get into my plot breakdown. Yeah. So the film takes place in a small town in Maine. Shocker for a Stephen King story. (laughs) There's this huge thunderstorm. Yeah. And it knocks over trees. It actually breaks a big picture window Mm -hmm. in David's house. And he and his son go into town to get supplies along with their neighbor, who is this guy who doesn't live in town full time. He's a lawyer in New York and kind of, this is his country house, basically. Yeah. His name, and that's Brent. Right. And as they are kind of assessing the damage and getting ready to leave, they see this really thick fog kind of rolling in over the lake. And Dave and his wife actually kind of note that it's a little weird, but... Usually post-storm, though, skies are clear. Yeah, this is Silent Hills level (laughs) of thick fog. So they get to the grocery store in town. David's wife stays home. Mm -hmm. And we kind of get introduced to a couple of little characters. We see Ollie, who is like an assistant manager at the grocery store. Sally is a checker. Who also babysits. Who also babysits Billy occasionally. Mm -hmm. Mrs. Carmoody is the local religious nut that nobody really takes too seriously. Mm -hmm. 
And as everybody's kind of standing in line waiting to check out, they hear klaxon alarms start to go off. Basically your standard air raid siren. Yeah. And Dan starts running towards the store and his nose is bleeding. He's clearly disheveled, terrified. And he runs into the store and screams that there's something in the mist. And it took this other guy. So nobody really takes him super seriously, but they, they do close the doors because shortly after this, there's like an earthquake. And so they all just kind of decide to just stay where they are rather than leave. Now, at some point, David, Ollie, and two others, they go back to the stock room because there's an issue with the generator that David noticed. Mm -hmm. And while he was back there alone, he heard and saw something like banging on the on the loading dock doors. Right. And the issue with the generator is all the exhaust from the generator was backing up into the stock room, which is not a good thing. No, because something outside was blocking the exhaust port. Mm -hmm. So because the others don't really believe him, they're like, well, we're going to, you know, raise the gate a little bit so that one of us can go out there and unplug this blockage, whatever it is. And that's when these giant tentacles, they end up opening it by what, maybe a foot? Yeah, I'd say probably closer to two feet, but... You know, we can split the difference. Yeah. And it grabs Norm, the bag boy who was going to go out. And these tentacles, they're not like normal tentacles because they, they seem like normal tentacles. And then they kind of flare open. Yeah. And you see they've got like needles and like smaller little mouths, almost like lampreys. Yeah. Kinda. Yeah. Kind of like that. I mean, these needles, they're, they're like claws almost. I was uh, going to say, I say needles. They're more like porcupine quill claw type things yeah they're they're hard they're they're sharp points of nope on an opening nope tentacle yeah filled with nope it actually kind of reminds me when i think about it anybody who's played dark souls the gaping dragon the way that it kind of rears up and then it like it opens yeah seems legit i'm like like not perfectly but it kind of reminds me of the gaping dragon from dark souls so Yeah, I I can see that. Yeah. Maybe not as toothy as the Gaping Dragon, but... Mm-hmm. Just kind of the way it unfurls. Yeah, it's uh, it's unsettling. Yeah. So they end up being able to convince the remaining survivors to attempt to barricade the front of the store. Because the front of the store is essentially just big plate glass windows. Yeah, you know, your average American grocery store. Yeah. A small town grocery store, you're going to see a lot of stuff like that. Typically, yeah. Less so, I feel like, in the Midwest, just because we have to worry about tornadoes. Yeah. But but yeah, there's still quite a bit of plate glass. Maybe not the entire storefront, but there's still a lot. At least at the entrances, yeah. Yeah. One thing I do appreciate about this point in the film, and the rest of the film in general, is there's this kind of open honesty that we get from David... Mm-hmm. And the rest of the guys who actually saw the shit go down, which is rare in movies like this. Because typically in movies like this, the people that actually see the shit are like, well, we can't tell everybody else because they'll freak out. So we'll just keep it to ourselves. But then they end up finding out anyway, and it causes a schism in the group. Right. And the the issue I run into with, with that part, though, is that Jim and Myron, when they're like agreeing with David saying, yeah, that's what happened. Mm-hmm. They look like they're lying. Yeah. I mean, that's even what I have in my notes right here. They look like they're lying, even when they're telling the yeah. truth, which I'm sure some of you may know someone where if you ask someone something and they're like, no, seriously, it's good. You're like, yeah, but is it? 
Yeah. Is, is that what you're really thinking, or are you just telling me that? That's kind of how it reads to me. Right. Es- especially when they've got Brent, who who they're telling first, who's a reasonable skeptic. I mean, he, he is a lawyer, you know. He's, he's trying to think rationally, but that skepticism winds up being fool's armor. Well, and that's the thing with Brent is he's skeptical. For one, he didn't see it. Right. And two, the people who are telling him what they saw... Well, one of them is David, mm-hmm. who they they already have, like, not a great history because I don't know exactly what happened. We never find out exactly what happened, but... S- yeah, some sort Nor- of Brent, land dispute or something There was some like sort that. of dispute yeah. where Brent sued David and lost. Mm-hmm. And so he thinks that they're telling him this bullshit story to make him look stupid, which, like, I mean, why would they prank you now, number one? Especially my, with the weirdness going on outside. Right. And and my whole thing is, why do you think that these grown men care enough about you that they would try and exact some sort of petty revenge on you for a lawsuit that you filed, but you lost? And why would they do it now? Yeah. Like, that doesn't make any sense to me. So because he's skeptical, Brent and some of the other people, uh, they decide that they're going to leave. And we never see them again. It's assumed that they died. Mm-hmm. We know for a fact that one of them dies because the one that we know for a fact dies is this biker dude who he doesn't want to leave completely. But one of the other guys has a shotgun in his truck. Yeah. So he's like, I want to go get that shotgun from your truck because I feel like that could help us. And they have him tie a rope around his waist to see how far he'll get without being attacked. And unfortunately... The rope gets pulled very quickly and then gets pulled up into the sky and then drops. And then when they pull it back, it's covered in blood. And on the other end is this dude's legs. Yeah, his his lower half. He becomes a rear admiral lower half. Well, he becomes something. Yeah. (laughs) He's half the man he used to be. Yes, that is true. It becomes nighttime. They've had to shut the generator off because of the blocked exhaust and... Mm -hmm. So they have lanterns and work lights and work stuff, lights and yeah. stuff like that all rigged. And that's when we see some of the stuff that's actually like really see some of the stuff that's actually out in the mist. Mm-hmm. Cuz I feel like these tentacles like we don't know what they are attached to. Yeah. So it's it's scary but it's like kind of makes me think of the whole, you know, snake tongue graboid thing where it's like, well, is this is this what it is, or is this? Is there more of, to it than that? Yeah. Is, is yeah. this just a finger? What 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 are we wor- really working with here? Yeah. So that's when we get two more creature types that are out in the mist. One type is this bug thing that is about the size of a house cat. I would say. Yeah, yeah, they're about the size of a house cat. They've got a stinger. Mrs. Carmody calls them locusts, but then she notes that they have stingers, and locusts don't have stingers. And I mean, she's just quoting the Bible however she can. She's crazy. Yeah, she just tries to weave whatever she wants into something to fill her narrative. Yeah, I have thoughts about her, and we'll get into it later. Okay. The other creature we get is what I call a dino bird. Because mm. I don't know of any other way to describe it. I mean, it's a featherless, leathery bird it's, with four wings. Yeah, yeah. It's there's elements of it that are very lizard-like, and some elements, particularly the wings, that are very bat-like. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's a very interesting creature. Its beak face kind of reminds me of the Skeksis a little bit. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So one of these dino birds, because the dino birds are just going for the bugs, 
which are attracted to the light that is inside the store. Right. Because, of course, they are. They're bugs. So one of these dino birds, in going for one of these bugs, smashes through the front window. Mm-hmm. Two people, unfortunately, end up being killed. One yeah. of them is Sally. Sadly. Yes. And one of these bugs lands on Mrs. Carmoody's chest, but does not kill her. Mm-hmm. And so now she sees this as basically confirmation of her I am the voice of God things and uses this to kind of get more people to come over to her way of thinking. One thing I do feel about that bit is that because they are attracted to light and like just the basic thing we see from these bug creatures, they essentially behave like normal bugs. They're just bigger. Right. So that thing not killing or stinging Carmoody has fuck all to do with her faith. And everything to do with the fact that she stood stock still and did not freak out. Yeah. Because anybody who's ever been around bees or wasps will tell you, if you freak out, it will freak out. But if you just stand still and do nothing, typically, it'll leave you alone. Unless it's a white-faced hornet. Those are evil. Right. They'll just sting you because they're like, "Mm, you're in my way, sting. So by this, by this fucking logic, if I stand stock still and a bee doesn't sting me, am I now chosen by God? Uh, according to her logic, yes. I, I don't know. I have thoughts about her. Mm. But again, that rant is for later. Okay. <laughs> so because of this propane, not propane, kerosene torch thing that they were going to try that failed miserably. And got um, someone killed. Well, I'm getting to that. Okay. One of the survivors has major burns, like third degree burns over most of his body. Yeah. Half his face. Yeah. Huge portion of his chest. He's he's not in great shape. No. So David and a few others decide they're going to go to the pharmacy next door because this is a small town grocery store. So it doesn't have its own interior pharmacy. Yeah. So they're going to go to the pharmacy next door and get supplies. I have thoughts about that. Okay. Just this whole, like there's what, six of them or so that that go over to the pharmacy? Uh, Give me a second. Let me count. There's seven. Okay, so seven risk their lives going to a pharmacy. And they're trying to save Joe Eagleton, ultimately, who's the one with the burns. Mm-hmm. He's so severely burned, there's nothing this pharmacy is going to have other than something that maybe can ease the pain, possibly. Yeah. Well, because I thought he's begging them to kill him. Right. So my whole thing is seven people are risking their life for someone who is since we don't know how long this is going to last, is probably going to be dead within 24 to 48 hours mm-hmm. without, like, emergency critical care. And, I mean, he's he's not getting fluids. He could get infections in his, you know, burns. They're, they're well, not because that's really... one of the other things they want to grab is antibiotics so he doesn't get infected. They want to grab antibiotics and painkillers. <sighs> yeah, but that's putting a Band-Aid on a bullet wound. I mean, I agree. Because, again, before they decide to go, he's saying they have a gun. Because Amanda's husband travels a lot and wanted her to have one for protection. So she keeps it in her bag. So they have a gun. And Joe even asks them, just give me the gun and I'll kill myself. Right. And I'm like, well, don't waste the bullets. There's other ways. There are other ways. There's even quieter ways that won't attract any more creatures. I know, exactly. And I can get that they kind of want to do the right thing to help this guy. But like... Prolonging his misery, though. Right, exactly. So while they are over at the pharmacy, they see there's this military police officer who was going around the town rounding up the soldiers who were getting ready to go on leave because leave's been canceled. Right. 
And he's still alive, unfortunately. Sort of, yeah. <laughs> he's kind of, he's stuck to the wall with this webbing, and he just keeps saying that he's sorry and that this is their fault. Yeah, he's kind of on his last legs. He is, because then... You want me to say it? No, I need to say it. You can do it. Spiders start erupting from sores on his body. <sighs> you okay? No. Yes. I'll no, get through it. This isn't just like a couple either. I'll and, get... and these are not normal it's... spiders. No, no. These fucking spiders. Oh my God. They are these giant spiders who are, they range from the size. I mean, the ones that are coming out of the dude are, are small, probably about the size of uh, like a shot glass. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like the size of a small lime, maybe. Yeah. But then you get some of the bigger ones that are basically the size of little Sebastian from Parks and Recreation. <laughs> and I'm just like, oh, I'm yeah. just sitting here. I'm like, no, no. Why? Why do we have giant fucking spiders? And why do they have human teeth? Yeah, they've got kind of skull-like faces with human, human-looking teeth. And their webbing is caustic. Yeah, yeah, they shoot webbing, and uh, one guy it, it gets across his gets across his pant leg and starts, starts burning eat, through. Bur- it burns yeah. through his pants, and then it starts burning through his leg. One guy gets straight up hit in hit the face in the with face. it. Yeah. Oh my god! Actually, that'd probably be the best way to go with these because it'd basically be nerve endings fried, brain death. Yeah. So I'm just thinking the most humane way to die by these would probably be that one of them takes i think david has an axe and one of them takes his axe yeah he, he and like sticks it sticks his axe in its back and it just kind of skitters away with an axe fire axe still in its back and, and i'm like like then the the mp falls forward and he explodes with spiders and i'm just watching this movie and like i cover my eyes and i'm like get out get out get out get out get out get out of the store get out of the store Go. Just go. Hey, real quick, you said something about not doing any more body horror? This is the last one. Okay. I forgot about it. <laughs> Listen. <laughs> Listen. <laughs> Stop laughing at me and fucking listen. I forgot, because it's been so long since I've seen this movie, I forgot how bad that pharmacy scene is. It's until we were watching it and then i'm like why tia why did you do this why is this the film that you picked why are you doing this <laughs> i don't i don't have any answers for you there i know i know you don't no one does why do i do this to myself who knows i think i still think it's because you secretly like to challenge yourself I, maybe 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 to an extent fair I did watch as much as I could before I covered my eyes. You did. you did notice. You did. You did. But you even watched the part where his chest was exposed, which I was like, she's watching this part. Wow. I know. I know. Was... And then his like one of the ones on his face went, and I'm like, no, we're good. Yeah. We know what's happening. Never mind. Sorry about it later on, Tia. When you're trying to sleep, and that's all you can see. So the good news is what <laughs> four or five make it back from the pharmacy. Yeah, the only two who don't make it back are... Legburn guy? Who who was Joe's brother. Mm-hmm. And his whole thing was, I'm going to go to the pharmacy whether anybody goes with me or not. Yeah, well. And yeah. there's like one other guy whose name I don't remember. The guy who got hit in the face. Yeah, the guy who got hit in the face. And Mrs. Carmody, of course, 
uses this failed mission to her advantage. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, Joe, who got the burns, ends up dying anyway. Yeah. And I, I wrote in my notes when we were watching this, when uh, they get back to the store and Mrs. Carmoody and her a couple of zealots are there. I wrote, uh, oh, good. Mrs. Carmoody and her Karen crusade are here to tell us how sh- this shit's all our fault. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> I just... <sighs> mm. She, of course, starts to get more and more followers because the thing about desperate people is when desperate people are in a bad situation, they will latch on to anything that offers them any semblance of hope, regardless of how ridiculous it would seem in their normal times. And I'm not saying religion is ridiculous. I am saying that zealotry is dangerous and can be easily weaponized to yeah. regardless of what yeah. faith system you follow. Zealotry is dangerous in all its forms. There's a one point where they somebody calls Mrs. Carmoody our own personal Jim Jones. And I'm like, you know what? That's accurate. David falls, ends up passing out and later wakes up and remembers that that MP, like he and Irene and Dan all remember hearing the MP say that he keep, he say, keep saying he was sorry and that it was all their fault. And David's like, I want to know what the fuck he meant by that. So we're going to go find Jessup and the other two soldiers that were with him and figure out what the fuck is going on. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, those two soldiers have hanged themselves in the stockroom. Yeah. And Jessup knows the least out of the three of them. He knows because, yeah, he knows the least. He basically he knows rumors, but he tells them what he knows or what he's heard and reveals that the local military base in the mountains has been working on something called the Arrowhead Project. And they have essentially been doing what I call fucked up Rick Sanchez science. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he says that, that, that they were trying to open a window. Open a window. To, into other dimensions. Yeah, because they, they theorized that there were other dimensions close to ours. And they wanted to open a window to see inside these other worlds. So they have been experimenting with essentially interdimensional portals. Well, they needed to have a screen on them windows because bugs got in when they opened the window. Yeah. So the mist and the creatures in it are essentially their their fault because they, instead of opening a window, they opened a door and were unable to contain it. Or a tear. I think a tear is mentioned at some point. Yeah. I'm not exactly sure what they did and we never find out. That's the thing. It's just a night. It's just a theory. So at this point now, it's it's somewhere between Rick Sanchez and Carl the Llama. Yeah, basically. (laughs) Yeah. Why are there baby hands? Yeah. And my and my thing is, how fucking big is this portal? Because there's some things that are like house-sized, house-cat-sized bugs. And then there are other things like the the big spiders. And then later on in the parking lot, there's this crab thing that's the size of a house. Yeah, I call those um, big creepers. The crab thing in the parking lot? And the bigger one they see later. Where oh, yeah. The one that basically looks like an elder god. Yeah. I mean, we're we're talking, you know, what, 30, 40 feet tall? At least. And that's the smaller one in the parking lot. Mm-hmm. And then the bigger one they see is probably easily six, seven stories. The smaller one in the parking lot actually kind of reminds me of those uh, fuck-off Japanese spider crabs. Yeah, but just, you know, the size of a quarter of a parking lot. Yeah. And it has lobster claws kind of at the front. Mm-hmm. So Mrs. Carmoody, she and her group who have gotten exponentially bigger, they now outnumber David and the group of logical folks. 
they hear Jessup's story also, and they blame him. He is responsible. Because he, well, he's the representation of, if it's the military's fault, he's the only representation of the military that's here. And so she talks her followers into sacrificing him to the beasts. Because that's her whole thing is like, we have to sacrifice the, God is a God of, of vengeance and blood. And so we have to give him blood to fix this shit. And she's very Old Testament. Which is funny because she leans on New Testament. New Testament too. It's really weird. Yeah. It's... She just kind of picks and chooses, and which is, I don't know. So unfortunately, they stab him a couple times and then throw him out into the parking lot, and he is quickly devoured. Which, I mean, at least it was quick. Yeah. And because of this, Dave and his group of logical sane people realize they need to leave. Because they are quickly, they're already outnumbered. It's just going to get worse. And how long is it before... Mrs. Carmoody says, let's sacrifice a child. And the <laughs> one of the only children of the group that's not part of her followers is David's son, Billy. Yeah. So they go to leave. But of course, Mrs. Carmoody is like, no, you're not leaving. Mm-hmm. And just like they thought, she wants to sacrifice Billy and Amanda. Yeah. And I love that instantly Ollie's like, fuck this shit. And always, just fucking shoots he- her. Ollie's a hero through the whole movie. You know, everyone else is hemming and hawing on stuff, and he's the one sitting there going, I know how to shoot. I was a state champion back in back in 94. Yeah, the yeah. store manager says he's going to start writing down the names of people that are that he sees taking things, and Ollie's like, write down your names, but shut the fuck up. Yeah, and, and that felt very empowering to me. Yeah. You have no power over me anymore. I officially resign. Now sit down. Yeah. So Ollie shoots her uh, first in the stomach and then in the head mm-hmm. because double tap. Well, and because she was still moving after the first shot, so he had to waste a second shot on her. No, yeah. And I love that he says, I wouldn't have shot her if there wasn't another option. And he he says that twice. He's like, he's remorseful about it. He didn't want to kill anybody. He didn't want to shoot her. She left him no choice. It came down to, okay, so are they going to stop at the child and what's her face? Or are they just going to keep sacrificing us? Keep going and keep going, yeah. Because at this point, her... It had gone full cult at this point. Oh yeah, it for made sure. it made Lord of the Flies seem like rational thought. They've actually that they've it's actually been compared to like a Lord of the Flies type situation before. Yeah. So some of her followers, seemingly broken from her spell now that she's dead, they let the people who want to leave leave. And probably because Ollie's got a loaded gun and they've got knives. That's that too. <laughs> they don't want to break, be the one whose epitaph is died brought knife to a gunfight. Yeah. Unfortunately, Ollie and this older gentleman who reminds me of Sam Elliott, his name is Ambrose. They unfortunately do not make it. They end up getting killed. And Bud, the other guy that was going to go with them, gets turned around in the fog and eventually ends up running back to the store. So David is able to retrieve the gun before they all drive off. Yeah, just barely missing an an assault from a nope spider. Mm -hmm. Although Um, most spiders are nope. Yeah, I mean, that's true for me. I, I, under, I understand there's like, you know, pet tarantulas and stuff, but these are nope. They have human teeth. I'm sorry. Yeah. It, things that have human teeth that should not have human teeth are just inherently wrong to me. <laughs> we, we saw what happened with the first teaser trailer for Sonic before it came out. And, oh my God, right? And like the backlash was just like, okay. Oh God. Anyway. So throughout the whole movie... Billy has been very concerned about his mother, which, you you know, as a, as a kid, he's, what, sure. seven? 
you would be upset if you're... Yeah, he's probably somewhere between 7 and 10. Yeah. So they drive in the car. It's David and Billy, Irene, Dan, and Amanda. They go back to David's house to see if his wife is okay. She, of course, is not. Because when this fog rolled in that had spiders and stuff in it, there was a giant hole in the side of her house from a window getting broken. The thing that happened at the very beginning of the movie. Exactly. And so they decide that they're just going to see how far they can drive and either keep driving until they're out of the mist or they run out of gas. Right. And unfortunately, they run out of gas before they get out of the mist. Mm -hmm. I like this scene where there's this kind of silent agreement where they all kind of look at each other and there's this unspoken conversation that happens where the adults decide we don't want to just sit here and wait. Right. And unfortunately, while they have the gun... There are only four bullets left in the gun, but there are five of them. Mm-hmm. And one of them even points out, but there's five of us. And David says, I'll figure something out. Yeah. And this is when we get to the, just the emotional gut punch of this film. Yeah. David Mercy kills everyone, including his son. Mm-hmm. And then leaves the car with the intention of being taken off by these creatures. Yeah. Because while they were sitting in this car making this decision, they could hear creatures in the distance. Yeah. They didn't know how far away they were or what exactly, but they could hear them. And David is standing there. He's screaming, come on, come get me, come on. And then he hears some noise coming from in front of him and the fog starts to lift And it's not a monster. It is a tank that is leading a large contingent of the U.S. military. As well as survivors, including people we saw at the beginning. People we saw at the beginning in the store. uh, Soldiers with guns and flamethrowers. They're going through killing the bugs and other creatures. And David realizes that not only were they minutes less than five minutes from salvation. He just murdered four people, including his own son for nothing. And something you pointed out, because we were watching it with subtitles on, because sometimes you miss some of the quieter, quick stuff. Yeah. This is the first time I've ever watched this movie with subtitles on. And I did not realize that every other time that I've watched this film, when he falls to his knees and you can tell and his mouth is moving I just assumed it was like unintelligible rambling, mm-hmm. but no, he's actually saying, what, what is the quote? I have Here it written it down. They're dead for what? And those are the last words in the movie. Yeah. And I just like, oh, and I, when I first saw this movie, I hated the ending. I, I hated it. Mm-hmm. I thought it was cruel and I didn't, I did not understand it. I will fully admit that I didn't get it. I was I was younger and in that time where I still believed that stories deserved happy endings and things like that. Mm-hmm. But every time I have watched this film since then, I appreciate it for how clever it is and for not giving in to expectation. Because it would have been so easy for them to give this a happy ending, which is probably what the studio wanted. Probably. Because Frank Darabont, the only reason he agreed to go with the studio that he did to make the film is he told them, 
I'll make the film with you all, but you are not allowed to change the ending. And they said yes. So he could have given us a happy ending. Or he could have gone with King's original ending, which was ambiguous. Right. It was just, well, off we go in the fog. Or but in the mist. Exactly. I keep saying the fog. Fog's a totally different movie. It's it got, is. It's, it's got We've ships talked about and before. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But Frank Darabout said, no. I want to give it a definitive ending, and I want it to be devastating. And it's just so fucking good. Mm -hmm. I love the ending now. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things where Stephen King gets a hard time a lot for his endings. They even make, it's a running joke in It Chapter Mm 2, where they're talking about Bill's books, where they're like, I love the book, but I hated the ending. (laughs) That's what a lot of people say about Stephen King. Yeah. And he was, Stephen King, when he saw this movie, he said it genuinely frightened him. Mm -hmm. And he actually also prefers the ending of this film and wishes that he'd thought of it. Yeah. Rather than just being like a maybe they live, maybe they don't ending. So I have three facts and then we'll get into our thoughts. Okay. Does that sound good? Sounds good. All right. So Stephen King actually got the idea for this movie while at a market in Maine. Again, shocker. Yeah. He noticed that the front windows were made of plate glass. Mm-hmm. And he wondered what would happen if giant insects flew at it. And, there, and then went from there. There you go. In addition to inspiring this film, or being an adaptation, rather, this film is an adaptation of the story, the original Stephen King novel was also the inspiration for Half-Life. Hmm. Okay. Where uh, scientists at a top military base, they're running experiments, international portals, and they open floodgates for things to come through. Yeah, Black Mesa. You know, I mean, you know, mistakes yeah. were made. We mentioned that uh, six-legged behemoth, the Mm -hmm. Elder God-looking thing. So Frank Darabout actually did not originally intend to include that creature in the film when it, the whole it walking over the car thing, even though it's one of the novella's most popular scenes. Mm -hmm. And it was actually several uh, Cafe FX technicians who convinced him to put it in the movie anyway. Cool. But it's a good scene. I mean, it's it's a visual touchstone to say, you thought those big suckers were bad? Yeah. These are nothing. It's it's like when you first see those insects, you're like, oh, God, those are giant insects. And then when it clicks in your head going, oh, shit, those are insects. The things are now that mm-hmm. are risking breaking through are what are eating the insects. Those are food to the other things. Yeah, exactly. We're at the bottom of the food chain. The creature design in this film is already it's top notch. I have the special edition Blu-ray. Mm-hmm. Which has a lot of different special features. And we watched one small, it's like a half hour documentary about the creature effects. Yeah. And I love the fact that there were some things when they were kind of planning the film and going through the design. There were things that they knew that they would eventually have to do with CGI. But they built physical models of stuff anyway. So that the actors would be able to see. And when I say built models, I don't mean like built like small tabletop models. I mean, they built actual size, actual to scale versions of the bugs and the spiders and the dino birds. And they actually even used them for rehearsing scenes and And some shots, some shots too, so that the actors would know exactly what they were supposed to be reacting to. Yeah. Cause even, even if you're fighting with something that's actually not there, being able to rehearse with an actual model model of it, 
where you know its dimensions and you know what kind of weight it would be applying to and things. You know, that, that makes a lot of sense. It's a lot easier than acting against a tennis ball. Right. It's a lot easier to react to something that isn't there when you know what that thing is supposed to look like. Right. One of my other thoughts about this film, as with most films... The sensible people end up having to worry a lot more about other humans than they do the monsters. Mm -hmm. There's actually this point in the film where Billy says to David, don't let the monsters get me. And the first thing I thought was, which ones? Yeah, that's a good point. So let's talk about Mrs. Carmoody. Mm -hmm. I feel like, I don't know how it is internationally, but I feel like every small town in America probably has someone like her. That person who is just so deeply religious that they're to the point where they have to try and force their beliefs onto everybody else. Mm -hmm. And they see it as them doing you a favor. Mm -hmm. If I believed in heaven, which I don't, I believe in reincarnation and heaven was full of people like her, I would rather burn in hell. Like burning in a lake of fire would be more enjoyable than spending eternity with a self-righteous bitch like her. And she can't even get the books of the Bible right because she keeps calling it the book of revelations. It is the book of revelation. There is no S. Yeah. And it's a common Mandela effect situation where a lot of people remember as revelations. Mm -hmm. Good luck finding a, a copy that has that S on there. It's revelation. Revelation. Singular. Yeah. But you know, what does this silly pagan know? You know, I mean, it's not like I haven't looked at comparative religions half my life. It, it's actually, it's quite interesting the amount of people that are not religious or that identify as pagans or Satanists that know more about the Bible than a lot of Christians do. <laughs> it drives me crazy. <laughs> well, in, in, a, in a way, it makes me think of lawyers preparing for a case. You have to know the other side's case That's inside fair. and out. That is fair. All right. Did you have any further thoughts before we get into your bit? Um, yes, actually, I had three things. Okay. The first one I'm going to talk about is periodically David speaks to his son and he calls him Big Bill. Yeah. And I can hear from your tone that there was some acceptance in that. I, I think that's absolutely horrible to try to enforce this hyper-masculine tough guy situation and be you need to be the strong man now no he needs to be scared because if you're if you're trying to be tough that makes you foolhardy that gets you killed he needs to be scared he needs to learn his environment my my tone was because that was a reference (laughs) it's a reference to it because that's what that's what bill's dad calls him in it and he's frequently called big bill that that's fine okay (laughs) doesn't make it right that's fair he needs to let him be afraid yeah Because fear kicks in survival instincts. Being, you know, man of the house, tough guy type attitude is not going to get you anything but killed. That's, I mean, I guess I don't look at it as him trying to get his son to be tough. Well, but that's, you know, it it starts out with, you know, don't cry. You're a big boy now. Okay. And, and things like that. And that's how you start building toxic masculinity into a society. And that. That's fair. I mean, I understand that may not be where he was trying to go with it, but that's also something that that whole attitude could get his son killed. That's that's fair. The next I wrote down a quick assessment of all of the creatures into a very short run, and that is the spiders are the worst, followed by the stingy flies. I take no issue with the four winged birds and the big creepers. They're just hungry boys. 
and eat pieces or the top half of a person. They're hungry boys. I love that. Well, because their mission is clear. Chomp, done. They're not playing with the food. They're not stinging people in the neck. They're not spitting acidjiz or whatever at, at, at people. You know, it's, it's, it's very clear. It's very primal and it's done. It's not this sadistic spider shit. That's fair. Also, the bullet count. In so many movies, yeah. bullets are, like, never-ending. We're shown two speed loaders for this revolver. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's six rounds apiece. That's 12 rounds. 12 total, yeah. As you go through the bullet count, there's a point, and it kind of works as a nice little time marker, where Ollie is pulling the trigger, and it's going click. So we know it's empty. It gets reloaded. The next two shots are into Mrs. Carmody. Yes. That means we have four left. The count is accurate. Which is really rare, because, yeah. yeah, most films, it's... Magic reloads. It's magic re... Yeah, the gun or, never runs out of ammo. Or, or oh, she just ha- probably had bullets in her purse or something like that, other than the There's ones that we were shown. There's some sort of thing, yeah, exactly. But we were shown exactly 12 bullets. She has a very small purse. So it's, it's just kind of refreshing to be... That actually kind of makes it feel like a survival horror game where it's like there is limited ammo. Yeah, like, a, resi- like a Resident bullets. Evil where you have to be smart with your shots. Yeah. If they were to do it over again, they'd probably have the rocket launcher, though. Yeah, fair. <laughs> All right. Are you ready to jump into your bit? Yes. Yes, I am. All right. It's time for David's Anachronism Corner. Now, as we have said before, this doesn't necessarily mean the, these are anachronisms as they are like... Things out of time. Things out of time. They can also include just things that are inaccurate. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. There you go. Yay. Go, David. Thank you for that disclaimer. You're welcome. These all pertain to Tremors. Ah, fuck. So, when our handymen are shown putting up barbed wire fence of some sort, first of all, it's just a single strand and nothing three feet below it. it eh. The stake, the, the post that is part of this fence yeah. that they're attaching this barbed wire to is so visibly wobbly that... This fence isn't going to hold anything back. Like, you could lean on it and the whole thing topples down. Yep. So it serves no purpose. Okay. There's a scene where Rhonda is shown pulling a circuit card or a printed circuit board out of the seismograph while it's on. That is bad for machines. Yes, that is bad for machines. Also, I imagine taking that out in the middle of a Dusty desert, desert, yeah. It's probably mm. not great for it either. <sighs> okay. The, my big one that I actually had to do some research on the fly. Oh, goodness. Okay. <laughs> Well, because I, I'm rather familiar in a, in, a, in a past life of careers, I had to know a lot about waveform propagation and RF frequencies and things like that. So their whole situation with their CBs kind of irked me. Okay. So this whole contrivance that they can't contact Bixby for help is irritating because they know that they're, they know that the mountains are there, right? They live there. They know the mountains are there. Yeah. Okay. So... While it is true that CB signals can be blocked by solid objects such as land masses, mm-hmm. having an antenna, if they were to take one of their multiple four-wheel drive vehicles that get picked off one by one, had they had an antenna run up there, they would actually have a significantly greater range and they could go beyond Bixby because it's it's basically line of sight. You would actually think that Bert and Heather would probably have something like that now, right? that, I, now that I think about it. Yeah, so it's not a situation that occurred because of the other things that happened. It was a situation that existed before any of this started. 
And it was just not a problem until then. It was a problem waiting to exist. Well, because the really yeah. the, the CB radios, they only use them within the valley to communicate with each other. Because that's as far as they can go. No, I mean, like, before, even before the movie. Right. Because they had phone lines to dial out. Fair. So it, there was no necessity for that. But then, it, but which is why I say it would have made sense for Bert and Heather to do that, because that seems like the kind of thing that Bert would do. Because it would make sense, yeah? Yes, that is true. Uh, I mean, I could go into greater detail on, like, you know, radio wave propagation and horizon the, and all that stuff. This but is not that podcast. No, it is not. <laughs> um, also, speaking of Bert and Heather. Yes. While their co-op shooting was admirable. Yes. And, and you compared it to, like, us playing co-op in Borderlands. Yes. The weapons showed no kick, and they both would have been deaf before the elephant gun was brought out because... It wasn't until the elephant gun was brought out that Heather covered her ears. They're mm-hmm. in a concrete brick room. I know. The acoustics in there. They would have, ne- they would have been, had to have been shouting. Severe tinnitus. They would have had to have been shouting at each other for the rest of the movie. I, in order to hear each other. I don't know, dear. Also, one other oh fun, fun thing. <laughs> and it, it seems every time a movie breaks out a pneumatic rock-breaking hammer of some sort, I find a problem. Yes, that and nail guns. You also typically find problems with nail guns. So this rock-breaking hammer that the uh, road crew is using, Mm -hmm. this time they actually have, this isn't a gas-powered one, this is pneumatic, so it's it's run by a towable air compressor. And I can see they have a towable air compressor on site. Yes. But it's not running. They're kind of noisy, especially they were definitely noisy in 8990. I'm very familiar with that piece of equipment from certain companies, my dad worked with them i was around them all the time they make noise okay i mean there were some semi-quiet running ones later 90s but i understand they didn't want to have it on while people were saying lines but uh yeah i i'm sorry (laughs) you know i'm not sorry it's i didn't make the fucking thing no i know and here's the thing i know you think i dislike tremors i don't dislike it it's just you don't you don't dislike it but you don't like it either (laughs) Well, I wouldn't even say... I I feel like you're very neutral. I wouldn't even say that. It's just, there are things where it's like, if you go over to a friend's house and they're like, hey, you know, I I just made some of this, whatever. Pick something that you would never think to have for dinner. You you would still eat it. So we'll put it in the category of, I'd eat it, Mm -hmm. but I would never make it for myself. I would never order it for myself. That's fair. But it doesn't have anything that repulses me and it, it would taste okay, but it's not, it's not my kind of thing. It's not my jam. Do you at least like The Mist? Yeah, it's all right. Do you like it more than Tremors or about the same? You can't compare them. It's like trying to compare cheesecake to brioche bread. They're both they're both good in their own ways. Okay. But Tremors is very much, to me, a Saturday or Sunday afternoon watch. Yeah. The Mist is a nighttime watch. Yeah, I would agree with that. So I think that's going to do it for us for this week. Uh, I do have two quick housekeeping things okay i have been letting people know what uh movies we're going to be covering coming up for the first two episodes for the month of october there are no movies to watch mm-hmm. i'm gonna try and get into doing maybe not necessarily doing movies all the time 
and covering some other things. Right. Cause which we, was the intention of the podcast when we first started. Right. We've done that before. Mm-hmm. I mean, shit, one of our most, our most popular episode is our creepypasta episode. Right. Which is, I mean, there's some movie adjacent things, but right. creepypasta is its own beast. Exactly. So we are going to be starting in October covering some things that maybe there aren't movies involved. There may be like documentaries or something like that. And we might mention those. Literature. Literature, things of that nature. Yeah. So there's nothing to watch for the first two episodes of October. But because of that, and I did this in 2019. I didn't do it last year and I forgot. Mm. We're going to do it this year, though. We're going to do 31 Days of Horror yes. for October. So starting October 1st on our Twitter and our Facebook pages, I will be giving a film recommendation every day for the month of October leading up to Halloween. And every Saturday is going to be a family friendly film. So there's, I counted it out. There's five Saturdays in October. So you'll get five different family friendly kind of spooky movies, stuff that's maybe not necessarily horror, but horror adjacent how would you like a uh, weekly weekly recap of the 31 days on the website? I could put that put it up there, too. Sure. Yeah, we can do that, too. I'd be cool with that. Bam. Bam. French fries. Uh, I say potato. You stay potato. Yeah. Speaking of our website, you can find all of our socials and stuff there. It's mm-hmm. uh, h2horrorcast.com. There is also blog posts. Uh, links to our episodes and our Patreon. Mm-hmm. We are patreon.com slash h2horrorcast. You can support us for as little as a dollar a month. That goes to movie rentals. It goes to uh, new equipment. It goes to anything that we need to make the show and to make it better. And the website costs money, too. That, too. We do have a <laughs> subscription for the website that we have to pay. Um, but, that, but, you know, that's... But yeah, thank you to our current patrons, Lizzie, Mom, and Gray. We love you guys. You are the best. We appreciate so much that you support us financially. If you are unable to support us financially, we totally get it. There are podcasts and and YouTubers and stuff that we love that we aren't able to subscribe to their Patreons either. Yeah. But you can support us in other ways. The easiest way is to rate and review us. Uh, specifically on Apple Podcast, because that kind of helps with the algorithms and everything. But any other way you can rate and review us, even if it's just like hitting us up on the socials or sharing our links on Twitter, telling a friend that you enjoy us. I mean, we're getting into spooky season. So this is the time of the year where you could really help us out because this is when most people are gravitating towards spooky stuff anyway. Absolutely. I mean, I, I see at least once a week on Twitter, someone saying, hey, I kind of, I'm caught up on all my podcasts. I want some recommendations or this podcast stopped running, you know, any recommendations? Yeah, exactly. Don't be, don't, don't be afraid to share it. We, we are more than happy to take anyone who's willing to try us out. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So this is the last episode before spooky month. Mm -hmm. Everybody get ready. It's going to be great. Yeah. I hope. Until next time, I'm Tia. And I'm still David. And stay spooky, friends. But music for this episode is Save Us Now by Shane Ivers. Our artwork is by Catherine Nixon. <laughs>